Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. everyone. I'm Mai Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries. Welcome to our program, Revealing the Book of Revelation. We are in the midst of the study. And if you have your Bibles, well, you might want to open up to Revelation chapter 6. And we are ready to start talking about the fifth seal. Now, we already talked about the first four seals, and I referred to them kind of as a cluster judgment. It seems like the way those happen there's not a big time gap between them. Uh, in other words, they, the first four seals kind of almost happen uh, immediately, all as a combination. And I'll show you some other uh, judgments later on where that happens as well, and that's where we get the idea of a cluster judgment. But we're now ready for the fifth seal that is explained to us in chapter 6, beginning of verse 9. And if you join me there, let me read to you. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar of the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. So let's just talk about that seal, because that one is unique. It's separate from all of the other seals. It's, in fact, this specific judgment is separate from the others. We're talking about some believers that are going to die. And this is a conversation between some of the early ones that die, asking the Lord, how, how long has this got to go on, and how long do we have to wait before our blood's going to be avenged? There's a very key clue given in this judgment, and I want to point that out to you. He said, I saw underneath the altar the souls who had been had died. That These are the people that are below the altar. Now, the altar is in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. So what exactly is that? This is a very common expression in the land of Israel. It is said that if you die in the land of Israel and you're buried in the land of Israel, that you're buried beneath the altar, that the altar is being a central location for God's ownership on the whole nation belonging to him. And so we are talking about brethren who are going to die in the land of Israel. 
We're not talking about brethren who are going to be dying uh, all uh, around the different nations. We're talking about a, a specific judgment uh, and, and a specific thing that's going to happen to believers that are in the land of Israel. Let me go just one more step further with you. I have uh, alluded to and I've spoken in the past uh, with you about the concept of the greater exodus, about when the, um, the, we eat this Passover. Um, and, and that's the signal after the abomination of desolation, after the altar shut down. That's our signal to escape. Now, that is the prophecy that deals with us who are scattered in the nations. But what about the believers and what about the people that are in the land of Israel? There's a different set of prophecies that affect them in the same events. It says that uh, when they see the shutting down of the altar, um, it says that uh, that they are told that they have to flee. And in particular... The second part of the abomination, the setting up of the image. There's the shutting down of the altar, the setting up of the image. These are two elements to the abomination, the desolation. So as soon as they see the shutting down of the altar, as soon as they see the setting up of the image of the anti-Messiah, and that's part of the false prophet's effort to promote him into his leadership position, um, that, and he causes the statue of um, the anti-Messiah to speak, and uh, there's a miracle that takes place. On that day, Yeshua, this is Matthew 24, warns those that are in Judea, that's specifically in the land of Israel, that they are to flee to the wilderness. They're to flee uh, away from Jerusalem. Uh, it's very clear that there's going to be great danger to the believers of Yeshua in the land of Israel from that moment forward. That the the escaping they have to do is very very serious uh, for them to escape. Failing to escape at that point means that they're probably going to be subject uh, to death in the land of Israel. So this particular prophecy talks about believers in the land of Israel being subject to death uh, in the great tribulation early on with the seals being broken. Now, as I said to you before. The first four seals, I think, will come early. It'll be in the early months of the Great Tribulation. This one may be right on the heels of it. It may be in conjunction with it. It may happen right there in the land very specifically uh, to them. And it's a very specific prophecy for the children of Israel, the, the believers, Messianic believers that are in the land of Israel. So if you're not living in the land of Israel and at the time of the Great Tribulation, this is something you're going to be aware of and you're going to be, you're going to be knowing that it's happening, but it's probably not going to affect you directly. But if you're in the land of Israel, this definitely is going to affect you. You must follow Yeshua's words. You must escape on the day that you see the image set up of the anti-Messiah in conjunction with the abomination of desolation, and you must escape in the same way that on Yom Kippur the scapegoat is taken out. Uh, If you remember the procedure uh, on the Day of Atonement, the scapegoat, uh, there's two goats, and the priest will lay hands on one for Israel, one for himself, um, and the one for Israel, it is taken out of the temple, it is taken out into the wilderness where it's released. Some say that it dies there, there's a, a little bit of a mystery, it's actually just released uh, into the wilderness, 
And that act in Yom Kippur, that prophetically is about the escaping goat. It's the escaping brethren from the land of Israel at the time of the Great Tribulation. Um, it's a very unique prophecy. So let, let me summarize that again for you because it gets a little, this gets interesting. Um, there's a set of prophecies that deal with us as believers scattered in the nations during the Great Tribulation. There's another set of prophecies that deals with the believers that are in the land of Israel during the Great Tribulation. This fifth seal is specifically talking about those that are in the land of Israel uh, during that time that do not escape, that they are going to be subject to being killed. Now, uh, you'll take note of the fact that they, one of the, the good things that happens to them is they're given a white robe. As you will find out, all the saints are going to be wearing white robes when the Messiah returns. Uh, and that will be our initial garment uh, that we will be wearing um, after we get our immortal bodies. Um, and um, they're garments of righteousness. And uh, that we'll wear before the Lord and before one another at that time. All right, so let's move on to the next seal, and that's in verse 12. Let me read that one to you. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth and great men and the commanders of the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? If I were to take this description of the sixth seal, the parameters of listening here, great earthquake, Blue, moon is made blood red, uh, darkness, and, and all of the things associated with it here. And I were to then read you the prophecy of the seventh seal, or excuse me, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh plague, you'd hear me describing exactly the same thing in every place. And this is one of the clues to arranging these judgments and seeing how they work together. You know, I told you about the orchestra thing, that they're all going to play together at the end. Well, it turns out that the sixth seal, seventh trump, and seventh plague, they're all describing the same thing. They're all describing the day of the Lord. So that's what connects and integrates them together and that, that is the conclusion of these judgments, is the day of the Lord. And so this scripture is pulling that together. So this is actually, the sixth seal is the day of the Lord. Now, when is the day of the Lord? We know it falls in the days immediately after the tribulation. So let me restate that again. How long is the tribulation? 1,290 days. Blessed is he who sees the 1335th day. Wait a minute. That's, what's the difference between 1335 and 1290? 45 days. What are those 45 days? 
those are the days immediately after the tribulation of those days. And Yeshua has talked about several specific things taking place. Namely, we believe that is when the fall holidays will be fulfilled. Trumpets, there will be a resurrection and the rapture as we understand it at that time. A day of atonement, the day of the Lord hits. Judgment and devastation hits the earth and hits uh, unbelievers. And then finally on the last day of the 45 is the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, the first celebration in the kingdom. That 45-day period is very important uh, in terms of understanding how these judgments fall and because that's telling us this sixth seal, seventh trump, and seventh plague are happening in the midst of that. I'll show you another reference when we get a little bit further on about how the same set of days are referred to as the days of the last trumpet. The seventh trumpet is in those days right along with the sixth seal. And uh, so that's how they tie together. So the um, so you're I'm sure you're asking now, what in the world is the seventh seal? If we, the sixth seal is the day of the Lord, why would there be a seventh seal? What could that possibly be? And you won't get the answer to that until you get to chapter 8. Um, chapter 7 now is going to make a parenthetical interruption between the discussion of the seals. And you're not going to hear about the seventh seal until we get to chapter 8. In fact, chapter 8, verse 1 says, And when he broke the seventh seal, and it begins to explain the seventh seal. But there is a question posed that needs to be answered when, as you read the last part of chapter 6, verse 17, it says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who is able to stand in the day of the Lord? And the answer is only believers. The unbelievers can't stand. And how is it that we're able to stand? Well, we're standing by the support of the Lord. We will have been lifted off the surface of the earth. We have a new body. That's how we're able to stand because you can't be on the earth during the day of the Lord. The cataclysmic upheaval on the earth is so horrific that the, and the judgment is so horrific, nobody survives it. In fact, Zephaniah, the prophet, um, specifically says that this day is such a powerful day, indeed, he says, a terrifying one, that no inhabitant of the earth survives. I've heard some people suggest that maybe we'll have the day of the Lord and a few people survive and we churchmen that will be in charge of them. Nonsense. You know, the, the scriptures are emphatic about this. Nobody survives the day of the Lord. Remember the four judgments? Nobody's able to do it except those who are the survivors and so forth. So we're talking about all the way at the end of the Great Tribulation. And the seals have only told us about the opening judgments to it, some specific things in the land of Israel, and then it's told us what the final end result will be with the day of the Lord. The rest of the trumps are going to do the same thing. They're going to tell us about some things initially. They're going to tell us about some things that happened during the middle of the Tribulation, and then it concludes with the day of the Lord. Same thing with the plagues. It's going to tell us some things that are happening in the Great Tribulation, and ultimately it tells us what happens at the end. And you, thus you have this integrated set, 
three um, a set of three judgments, seven judgments each, and they come together. I'm, I might add this um, now that we're completing this first set of judgments. This pattern that we see here um, of um, seven judgments and three sets of them mimics the same judgments that God put upon the Egyptians. In the case of the Egyptians, we had ten great judgments, but the first nine were three judgments in a set of three. And the way you sort those out is is how the judgment was pronounced uh, to Egypt. The first one was at the River Nile. The second one was at the palace. The third one was unannounced. The fourth one was at the River Nile. The fifth one at the palace. The sixth one unannounced. The seventh one at the River Nile. The eighth at the palace. The ninth one unannounced. That pattern is one of the indicators to us that God has a very specific and definite plan as to what he's doing. And we see the same kind of thing taking place here in the book of Revelation on these judgments. There's a very specific pattern that lays out that tells us these are things that are planned and decided by God on how to do it. It's not, uh, shall we say, a reactionary judgment. In other words, man has done something, God's going to punish him for it. No, no, no. These are very specific judgments that God has planned for the earth. They're going to hit the whole earth, and everybody in the earth is going to be subject to it, uh, for it. And, again, he demonstrates his sovereignty, and he demonstrates that he doesn't answer to a man. You know, we answer to him. All right, so we've completed the first six seals. We're coming now to chapter 7, and, again, this is a parenthetical interruption. But what chapter 7 is really doing is ask, answering that final question that was in verse 17. Who is able to stand? So who is able to stand? Chapter 7 is going to give us the answer. Verse 1, chapter 7. After this I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Now, the... These are four angels, as opposed to seals where judgments break. These are four angels that have the ability to hold back certain judgments. And they work, obviously, in concert with the Messiah. The Messiah is still in charge of them and and, um, has responsibility for them. But you'll see how this will all begin to unfold. Again, we're paying close attention to any time an angel is mentioned and what's going on with them. Um, Take note of that. He's holding back judgments that might harm any of the sea or any tree. He doesn't say about the air or waters, but he's holding back things that would affect the sea and any trees. And we'll point that out a little bit later on, too, as to why that's significant. Verse 2, and I saw another angel... Ascending from the rising of the sun, that would be from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. 
This is what I refer to as a prerequisite statement. A prerequisite is something that must be completed before this can be completed. He's saying that something has to happen, namely, these people must be sealed before the judgments can hit the earth. And so let me um, tell you what we're getting ready to hear here. We're getting ready to be introduced to the ceiling of the 144,000. I'll give you additional details on that here very shortly. But the 144,000 are going to get sealed very early in the Great Tribulation. So let's go back to our tribulation sequence of events. Altar gets shut down, images set up, there's a Passover, we know to escape, we escape. And before the Antichrist comes to power, and before the judgments begin to break open, before the seals break open, and any of the other judgments break open, Ezekiel chapter 9 tells us that Gabriel the angel uh, with an inkhorn goes out and seals the 144,000. And let's talk about that a little bit more. But let me read to you further what it has to say about the, the sealing of the 144,000. Uh, verse 4, chapter 7. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. The first thing that we have to take note of here is this: these aren't all the tribes of Israel. That's not the names of all the tribes of Israel. There's a significant difference here from what we understand to be, quote, the tribes of Israel. Namely, Levi is not considered to be a tribe of Israel. Levi is considered to be the Lord's portion. They are the priests. They are not considered to be a tribe, but here they're called a tribe. Also, Joseph is not a tribe of Israel. But here they are, and his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, Manasseh was listed as a tribe, but Ephraim was not. So Joseph, the father of Ephraim, is standing in for Ephraim. Whoever, when it talks about the tribe of Joseph, it's really talking about the tribe of Ephraim. And in the case of the Levites, they are standing in for someone else, whose name is not mentioned here. And his name is Dan. The tribe of Dan is not listed. And Levi has the authority to stand in for any of the sons of Israel. So Levi is standing in as a substitute for the tribe of Dan. Uh, way back a long time ago when the redemption of the firstborn had to be done. This is in Numbers uh, chapter uh, 6 and 7. The the uh, the Levites, the sons of Aaron, stood in for the firstborn uh, of Israel. So Levi has always been used as a substitute uh, for others. And we see Levi standing as a substitute for the whole tribe of Dan. So why? we got a lot of questions here we've got to go through. Um, what in the world is God doing? 
why in the world is he doing this? I mean, why 12,000 from each of the tribes that he has listed? Well, it has to do with some very important prophecies and some very important events that took place in the ancient Exodus. In the last battle with the Midianite kings that Moses, when he was in charge of the children of Israel, before they crossed over to the the Jordan into the land of Israel, uh, God directed Moses for a final battle against the Midianite kings and gave very specific instructions that only 1,000 men from each of the 12 tribes would be used for the battle. So they collected up 12,000 men, 1,000 from each of the tribes. Those 12,000 men went after and attacked five different Midianite kings. And there was a great victory. And according to the scripture, not a single Israelite man was lost. In fact, the book of Hebrews uh, alludes to they, they died on the battlefield and they got back up. You know, they, you're telling me 12,000 men go into armed combat with shields and spears and swords and nobody got hurt? Yeah, they got hurt, but they got back up again. And all of them returned home and shared in the booty of the prize of the victory of the war. And they were resurrected on the battlefield. By them using this idea of a certain number of equal number of men from each of the tribes, I say men, but we don't know for exactly if it's male and female or just male, Uh, but a certain number from each of the tribes, it's alluding to that ancient story. It's, it's, It's that ancient story now in its greater form. So what is, what is it really communicating with us? These 144,000 are going to be at the start of the Great Tribulation. Their job is going to be to help preserve the saints in the Great Tribulation, to help guide them, direct them, and assist them, and to defend them. And, oh, by the way, at the end of this thing, when it's all said and done, and I'll show you in chapter 14, these guys are all going to be alive, and they're going to be the ones who greet the Messiah when he returns to Jerusalem. They do not die in the Great Tribulation. Why is it they don't die in the Great Tribulation? Because they have the seal of the, of the living God in their forehead. They have been given a seal that guarantees their life and protection from the Lord. So great are the 144,000 and the ministry they're doing later on at the end of the book. We're going to find out that they are the equivalent in terms of memorialization and honor bestowed by God. That the 144,000 are the equivalent to the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Messiah. That this is a ministry yet to come that will be an unbelievable, very powerful ministry of God. And they will be in the kingdom of the rank order of those other previous ancestors and the testimony of those that we've seen before. Plus, the wall of New Jerusalem is going to be built in such a way that it will, the wall will memorialize what the 144,000 have done. Um, the word comfort is one of the things that they're going to do. And the word comfort is actually a compound word. It means come into the fortress. Uh, 
if you're if there's a fortress sitting here and you're outside the fortress and the enemy is outside you don't feel so good about that that is not a pleasant place to be but if you can get inside the fortress you can get on the other side of the wall of the fortress you are then comforted from the danger and that's the primary role of the 144,000. They offer themselves, if you will, as a wall to the believers to provide security and safety and comfort to the believers in the midst of this great battle, this great war that's taking place, and so forth. The devil, whom I told you has been kicked down to the earth during the Great Tribulation, he specifically is in battle with these guys. He specifically wants to fight them. And they are given the skill to fight even the devil. Uh, so this is a very powerful ministry, very powerful anointing and calling that's uh, put upon it. Now let's go one other step further. Let's say, now how does this sealing process take place? Well, if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 9... And verse 4, it talks about Gabriel with his inkhorn, and he goes out to seal them. And it comes, if I give you a quick rendition of uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9, uh, chapter 8 is talking about great abominations, that uh, the Ezekiel seeing these incredible abominations. Well, the greatest one of them is the abomination of desolation. The greatest one is denying God his own altar. Is the, is the greatest abomination. And as a result, that's the, what's going to happen. Well, according to Ezekiel, essentially what happens is, and you're not going to like this, but it's true. The first judgment of the Great Tribulation is not on unbelievers. The first judgment is on the household of faith. And God is going to judge his household of faith first. Um, and that way that he's without excuse for, uh, you know, he's, he's free to judge the rest of the world. If he were to judge the rest of the world and then not judge his own people first, then you could say his judgment was not righteous. But when he judges his own house first, then he goes out and judges the others, then his judgment is righteous. So the first judgment is going to be upon um, his people. So let me explain. Ezekiel describes, and this fits into this sealing process, that there's actually seven angels that are involved with this. Six of them are given shattering weapons. The last one is Gabriel with the ink horn to seal the 144,000. The six are specifically dispatched to go judge those of the house of Israel who have misbehaved and simply the Lord has said, you're not going to be with the assembly. You're not going to be in the great tribulation with us. Um, this goes back to a, uh, a specific commandment that's in the Torah. A lot of people don't know about it. These are commandments concerning warfare. That if you have a person who, if the armies of Israel are assembly, we're getting ready to go face the enemy. If you have a man who says, I'm a coward, I, I can't do this. He's excused from service. Of course, his life from then on out in the nation is just horrible. He didn't have a life. 
if you have a man who has some other priority, for example, in the case of the laws of warfare, if he had just gotten married and he hasn't been married for a year, he gets to be excused the first year to be with his wife and potentially father children before he goes to warfare. The other is if he's just built a house, and by the way, building a house was a major, major event in your life, that he was permitted to live in the house for at least a year before he'd be called upon for war. These are commandments and laws of warfare that are in the Torah. But one of the biggest ones is has to do with cowardice. And there is a degree in which that there's going to be a lot of believers, okay, uh, the start of the Great Tribulation. Do you think everybody's going to be fired up and excited and encouraged and feeling tremendously strengthened by the Lord? Oh, boy, we get to be at the end of the age. We're going to get to see the Lord come, and everything's going to be wonderful. We're going to be in the kingdom and so forth. Do you think everybody's going to feel that way? The answer is obviously not. In fact, there will be a very large number of them that want to quit. Oh, okay, that's, this is too much. I don't want to do this. Let me go home. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be a part of it. You don't want to have that attitude when the 144,000 are being sealed. Because those six other angels go out and they slay any believer who's not ready to go through the Great Tribulation. If your faith gets you out of here, you're just taking up space, you're going to confuse her, you're probably going to kill other saints. So the Lord's going to judge his own house first. Um, while some of you may be saying, well, that's really not very nice. The truth of the matter is, when it comes to the issues of warfare, there's a very merciful act on the part of God. Um, upon all the others that have to go through the, the residual, the rest of it. If I was... <clears throat> having to be put in a very, very difficult situation with a handful of other people. And and we're all going to have to help each other. And we're all going to have to encourage each other. And, 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 and this is going to be tough. And we're not sure we're going to make it. And, and all of those kinds of things. At the moment that I'm facing that, if you stand up and I have to have an argue with you to try to encourage you to get with the program and, and join with the rest of us, I don't want you around. Why don't you just leave? You know, you're more trouble than you're worth. Proverbs says, an unfaithful friend is like a broken foot. The foot's still attached, hurts like heck. You can't walk on it, can't lean on it, can't rely on it. You just got to drag it around with you. And going through the Great Tribulation and taking certain brethren that you got to drag around with you because they're believers and they're not contributing to the process and they're faint-hearted and they're falling away and they're not believing, uh, that's going to be serious trouble. Serious trouble. This is part of the statement when Yeshua said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? And the impression is, well, we know there's going to be people there. Well, obviously, the people that are there, when the Messiah returns, they did have faith. They did have faith. And I can assure you that the events of the Great Tribulation and all the judgments falling and all that the enemy's going to want to do and so forth, you're going to need to have some serious faith. You're going to need to know who the Lord is and who you believe in. And you need to be convinced uh, beyond any doubt that it's going to be okay. 
that you're going to make it to the kingdom. The Lord, the Lord will prevail, and we will prevail with him um, in this endeavor. So here we have um, the 144,000 that's specifically been given to us, specifically to encourage the brethren to strengthen them to do it. But according to Ezekiel, there's going to be a judgment upon the removal of all of those that even the 144,000 couldn't help. If, if, you, if you survive that, then yes, you could, you're going to make it. You're going to be okay. And that is very encouraging, you know, to know that. So we've talked about the number of them. We've talked about the arrangements. Oh, I need to tell you one other. There's a very interesting sequence here. Uh, as you know, Judah, who's listed first, was not the firstborn son. It was Reuben. Judah was the fourth in the list of those that were born. So what is this sequence? Because it doesn't seem to line up with the other previous sequences of the tribes. This is it's telling you is the sealing sequence. You remember what it said? And of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. The next tribe, 12,000 were sealed. It's the sealing sequence. It's not trying to give you the sequence of the tribes of Israel. So what does that mean? All right, here we are. We're at the end of the age. We've seen the abomination of desolation. We've seen um, Israel flee. We're in the nation. So we eat the Passover. We escape. We go into the camp of the righteous. We're waiting on the Antichrist to come to power. Here comes this angel. And he goes through the camp, and he starts sealing certain people, and those people are now the 144,000. On day one of the sealing, those are ones from the tribe of Judah. On day two of the sealing are those from the tribe of Reuben. On day three, look at the list. It tells you which tribe you're in. Because when we go out there right now, we can't tell which tribe we are. That doesn't make any sense. But part of the sealing here is for the purpose to determine that the tribes are present and that they are there, um, you know, as part of God's call. So there's 12 days of this taking place. And by the way, there's time in there. There's 12 days in there in the sequence of events that will take place. But based on the day that you're sealed determines which tribe that you're a representative of. Why does God need to have that? Why does God need to have certain individuals who know I'm the tribe of Gad? I'm the tribe of Asher. Why does he need to do that? Because whether you realize it or not, what he's just done is he just established his government on the earth. The number 12 used throughout Scripture extensively carries one theme, the government of God. That's the reason why there were 12 tribes. The nation of Israel is constituted by 12 tribes. It is the, it is, and if you remember the elders of Israel, there are 24, two from each tribe, 12 tribes, two witnesses from each one, 24 elders. This is the government of God that God recognizes and works with. He established the nation of Israel to be a light unto the nations. His way of reaching out is to establish his government. So if we're going to have a great conflict, we're going to have Hasatan coming down here and fighting Israel, 
then the government of God, the government of the real government of Israel, has got to be established. And I'm not talking about the Knesset and all that other stuff like the other nations of the world. That's not the government of God in the great tribulation of Israel. Israel at this point is scattered throughout all of the nations. And it's going to be regathered from all of the nations. And the government of Israel is in those camps. And that's whom he's pledged to protect and to keep. Now, I know there's a lot of people going to say, well, Monty, I can't believe that you're suggesting that the present government of Israel is not the government of the God of Israel. Well, that government over there is the government of mortal man of the present Israel, modern Israel, in the age that we're at. We're talking about establishing the government of Israel at the end of the age that goes all the way into the Messianic kingdom. That Knesset's not going to go in the Messianic kingdom, but this government will. These representatives will make it all the way to the welcoming of the Messiah and to be in the kingdom for it. Um, so we've had this 144,000 group introduced to us. There's a lot more to this. In fact, uh, I won't get into all the super detail, but there are other prophets that talk about them. They're referred to as the remnant of Israel and uh, several other places by the prophets. One of my... One of the ones I really like is Isaiah, where it says, No weapon is formed against you. That's not just everybody in Israel. That's talking about the 144,000 remnant. No weapon formed against you will prevail or work uh, because they're able to fend off all of the danger um, associated with those days, particularly of the danger of Satan and his effect on the world uh, in those days of the Great Tribulation. Um, and I, I like the one in Micah. I think it's in Micah chapter 7, which talks about the remnant in that day is likened unto a young lion walking through flocks of sheep. And the word picture that is given to us is one of the most dramatic and interesting word pictures. Um, I always share it kind of this way. Let's say that we're in a room. And there's an assembly of us. And um, all of a sudden, the main door opens. And a young, one of them big old samba-colored African lions, you know, with the mane and everything, he just comes strolling into the assembly where we're all sitting. What, What do you think the reaction of the people would be in that room? Especially when there doesn't appear to be any trainer, there's no leash involved. He just walks in and decides to walk through the midst of the assembly where we're at. Do you think people would be getting up out of their chairs and panicking and and fleeing away in every which way they can to try to find a way to get out of that room? I would suggest to you that's exactly what they'd be doing. We are like sheep in front of these people have incredible authority from God. That And especially that same authority also is with enemies. And in fact, it goes on further in the Micah prophecy to talk about that if anyone comes and attacks them, if anyone comes against them, they have but to raise their hand, call upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord will cut them off or cut them to nothing. Um, And I'm not quite sure exactly what weapon that is or how that weapon system works. 
But that sounds like a pretty effective weapon system to me. Uh, that if you have a crowd of people in front of you and they're opposed to you and all of a sudden you raise your hand and say, hey, Lord, uh, got a problem here, cut them, cut, them, cut them to pieces. And by the way, the term cut them off means end their life, means completely kill them. Um, now, if you had, say, I don't know, you know, half a dozen of these guys in your camp, and you're tooling through the Great Tribulation, but you've got these guys with us, and all of a sudden danger comes to the perimeter of the camp, you would want those guys to run out there and face the danger, right? Well, that's the whole business of comforting. They become the wall. They become the thing that's between you and the danger. And they take their position. That's their job, is to protect and defend and to deal with the enemy, whatever is being confronted. And apparently God gives them the means to do this. By the way, all of them, none of them get killed. They're all there at the end, welcoming the Messiah. So, very powerful prophecy that's taking place. Let me say just one last thing about the 144,000. There are different groups uh, throughout the years, different churches and church types and denominations that have tried to find some way to connect this to them. Uh, in fact, this is a favorite passage of the Jehovah's Witnesses, where they like to assert they think they're the 144,000. Um, and, of course, there's more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, so that didn't quite work out for them. Um, but in particular, there's some who just don't want this. It's like too literal. This is too specific. It, and it, it begs questions to a lot of uh, churchmen that they can't answer. Like, why aren't all the tribes listed correctly? And why 12,000? And the information I just shared with you would be all brand new information to them about it. And, and because of that, they're perplexed. And as a result, they have come up with allegories and goofball theories about this. And uh, not that many of them want to look at the scripture as being literal or as this it's describing exactly what will happen they they want to take issue with it um, and so they want to try to find some way to soften it and to reduce it to where it doesn't have a lot of meaning to it all right now we're going to meet a second group that is going to be part of those that are able to stand in the wrath of the lamb they are described to us after the 144,000 in verse 9, where it says this, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So let's stop there for a moment. The second group is a very large group. Um, and in a few moments, we're going to find out when they ask the question, who are these people? It'll actually be answered. 
the tribulation saints. They are the believers. How many are going to go through the great tribulation and make it? By the way, how many people are going to go through the tribulation, believers, and make it? How many are going to do it? No man can number them. Now, let's stop and think about that for a moment. No man can number them. There are a lot of things in this world that we as men can number. We can number nations. We can number uh, all the people in the world. We can number all. I mean, we have computers that can keep track of all the numbers and and, uh, so forth. We do. In fact, in our country here, we do a census every 10 years. We number all the citizens of our country. But it says of this group, it's so immense and so scattered, no man can number them. And it says they are everywhere. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is great news for us who will find ourselves in the Great Tribulation. And if you're not one of 144,000, do not be discouraged. (laughs) You're part of this multitude. And uh, it has a lot of great things to say about them, including you're going to make it, you're going to be resurrected, you're going to get one of those white robes, you're going to be part of the assembly, and you are going to get a chance to worship the Lord right up there with living creatures and right up with the angels and all those that have been before, and you get to be part of that great assembly. The uh, Let me conclude the rest of the chapter here, verse 14, or excuse me, verse 13. One of the elders answered, um, excuse me, let me back up. And one of the elders answered saying to to me, these are clothed in white robes. Who are they and from where have they come? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their foot robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. So who are these people? They're not all the saints of all the ages. They are specifically the saints of the last generation that went through the greater exodus, went into the great tribulation, and God has a very specific way of honoring them. They get to serve him in the temple. By the way, you remember the picture that says they were holding palm branches? Why would you be holding a palm branch? Because sukkahs are made with palm branches, leafy branches. They're the ones that dwelt in Sukkot and went through the great tribulation they come to worship the Lord and they're ready to observe the very first Sukkot in the kingdom you do know throughout the years we have many brethren who know the Lord who have not kept Sukkot when they get to the kingdom and the resurrection has taken place they have their white robe they join the great assembly of all the brethren Um, they're going to be looking over at this group, this multitude that no one can number, along with the 144,000, and they're all going to have those palm branches over there. And some of them are going to go, why do they have palm branches? It's because those are the people that know what Sukkot is, and these people do not. Um, I have always encouraged uh, people that follow my teaching, when we get to the kingdom and... um, don't ask me what Sukkot is. You'll embarrass me. I hope one of the things I've taught you is about Sukkot. 
and this is a group that knows about Sukkot. They are very special saints in the kingdom. So let me just for the moment, with the, the question we were posed was who's able to stand in the day of the wrath of the Lamb? Two groups. One, the 144,000 that are sealed, that are the government of God, 12,000 from each of the listed tribes. Group number two, an innumerable multitude of tribulation saints who know all about Sukkot. Not only did they use Sukkot to help deliver them during the Great Tribulation, but they are ready for the great celebration of Sukkot, the first celebration at the coming of the Lord. They're the ones, all of them, that are going to be first in the line to greet the Messiah when he returns. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. Now, there's lots of great saints, and they're all going to be part of the kingdom. But the Lord specifically has said here, there's certain people associated with these end-time events, this great tribulation. They are going to be honored they are specifically going to be addressed. I have a few more minutes left. I want to get us into chapter 8 and specifically deal with the seventh seal. I think I can cover that here very quickly for you. So, you know, what in the world is the seventh seal? Here it is, chapter 8, verse 1. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about the space of a half an hour. And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him that he might add to the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which had been before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God and out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer, and he filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder, sounds, and flashes of lightning as an earthquake. Now, we get, we're getting introduced to the seven trumpet angels, but we're now finishing and talking about the seventh seal. But the event that is being described here about the censer being thrown, it's what I was telling you about earlier. When the sealing of the 144,000 takes place, there's those seven shattering angels. How does that judgment come down? How, do, how does that judgment conclude? It goes back to an ancient story that followed after the rebellion of Korah. When Korah rebelled and was judged by the Lord, the very next day, the people who liked Korah uh, got upset. And they said, you know, we think Moses and Aaron uh, did an arm twist on God and hurt Korah, our brother. So let's go, and we're going to complain about that. And God had warned the children of Israel, if you approach my altar um, in a contemptuous manner, you will die in the day that you do it. Well, they did. They approached the altar in a contemptuous manner. Moses sensed this immediately and directed Aaron to get up and get his censer, to get incense on it, get fire off the fire altar, and then run out into the assembly because the plague had already started and to stop the death that was taking place. So the censer being thrown to the earth is the same thing as Aaron running with the censer. He's trying to stop the death of God's people. You remember the shattering angels? 
The judgment comes first on the household of God. What stops it? What stops Because it, it would take everybody out. In fact, Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 9, says, Is it your intent, God, to destroy the entire house of the remnant of Israel? Because it looks like he's going to wipe everybody out. No, he's not going to wipe everybody out. It's a selective judgment. But the way that judgment stops is this angel throwing this censer to the earth. When that censer gets to us, that's when death stops. That's when that particular judgment stops. This is probably one of the prophecies that has the greatest parallel back to events that took place in the wilderness during the Egyptian exodus. And it ties very directly into us at this point. So the seventh seal is really telling us about, first of all, it's quiet in heaven for the space of half an hour. And then it tells us about this judgment on the household of God that took early, took place early in the, um, in the Great Tribulation. By the way, that judgment takes place before any of those seven trumpet angels can sound. Because we've got four angels at the corners of the earth keeping all the judgments against the earth and the trees and the sea uh, from happening. By the way, that's what the trumpet judgments are. The trumpet judgments are judgments on the earth, the sea, trees, and so forth. And so he holds the trumpet judgments back until they're sealed. And in the course of them being sealed, judgment comes on the household of God. Good thing that angel throws that censer down there so that that judgment ends quickly so that we don't all get wiped out and that we're able to become one of the tribulation saints. You know, that has been spoken of. A lot of information, a lot of sequencing stuff that goes on here. That's the reason why it's an excellent example, as I shared with you before. You almost have to get a 3D vision of all these things because part of it was described to us earlier, and part of this is here, and this fits here. And you got to look at the whole, whole picture, you know, to see the real sequence and how it all plays out. And it's like. Looking at all the sheet music on all those different instruments, and can you hear the music? Can you hear the music playing? Can you hear what the orchestra is really, the sound that's coming forth? Can you see the vision of these great prophecies coming together in the end? If you can, you will be in an amazingly good position to get through this uh, as to what's going to unfold and to be around it. All right. We have now completed the seventh seal, and we've talked about this particular thing. We are now ready for the seven angels with the seven trumpets in our next program. So we'll be getting at chapter 8 at verse 6 in the next program. Until then, shalom. We'll see you again.